Heterodorks. Heterodox dorks. So let's introduce you and this podcast. <laughs> hey, Turfs and Trannies, you're listening to Heterodorks. I'm Nina Paley, your co-host. I'm Corinna Cohn, your other co-host. And, you know, Nina, we've been doing something really terrible with our podcast lately, which is talking about individuals that have uh, differences of development for sexual development or intersex individuals, how whatever label uh, is, is currently in use. But we've been talking mm-hmm. about individuals with these conditions without including them. So we're remedying that today by having Joe on our show. Joe. Welcome, Joe. Joe uh, was, hi, hello. <laughs> Joe is also known as Case Files, C-A-I-S Files on Twitter. And uh, when we had the Drager Wright debate, when we announced the Drager Wright debate, she said, please don't let them talk about mm-hmm. intersex <laughs> conditions. And the whole debate, not the whole, but almost the entire debate was about mm-hmm. intersex conditions. And the the subject, the, the claim made in the debate was biological sex is real, immutable, and binary. And so it was like an hour of talking about intersex conditions. And mm-hmm. let's talk about your thoughts on that. that <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's just been quite exhausting more than anything else because it's just been an endless debate about people with variations of sex development or intersex variations or differences of sex development, whatever you want to call them, which has just been endless now for the last few years and mostly by um, non-experts, possibly who've learned these little nuggets of biology for mainly TikTok or Instagram or some other form of social media or a gender studies class and don't seem to realise that who they're talking about are real people and often real people with quite complex um, physical health conditions that can exist alongside the variation of sex development and um, and for me, um, the one thing that really struck me is just how differently um, people talk about people with DSD and sex variations compared to how you would talk about individuals with a trans identity. And you have all these guidelines for schools that will talk about not misgendering, to be respectful. And to validate all this, they will then talk about... Um, sort of people with a DSD as a third, fourth, fifth sex or neither male or female. So you are told that misgendering somebody is the most profoundly offensive thing you can possibly do whilst calling people like me a third, fourth, fifth sex and telling me that I'm neither male and female. And actually having whole lessons in school where they use the bodies of people like me or of other types of variation of sex development to almost portray this idea that we're neither male or female that we're all this in between and that then leads to all this complete nonsensical information about how we have both sets of genitals or all sorts of nonsense that sort of comes from that that it's almost like we're not being treated as real people in the same way that um I guess people with trans identities or any any other letter on the LGBTQ scale would be. We're almost this thing that's been tagged on without anyone really 
having the first clue or understanding anything about needs. And I do think the whole debate is just ridiculous because you can say sex is probably about as binary as you can get in nature. But then there are some of us who um, who don't fit neatly into a category if you're going to go right and dig right down into biological categories. But on the whole, we've still mostly been observed to be a sex at birth. Sometimes there can be lots of investigations afterwards for the really complex um, cases. But on the whole, most people are yeah, observed a sex, have a legal sex and birth and continue to live as that sex. Um, if they do change, then that tends to be much more common in sort of early childhood or infancy rather than later. When when you say they change, you mean when their classification changes, like if, if they have yeah, DSD, so, yeah, that's when they, discovered. Yeah, when they've done the yeah, yeah. when they've done the research, um, it seems to be that sometimes um, when a baby is born, because it's su- you're talking about such a teeny tiny number as well. For however much they say the 1.7% of people are intersex, this includes a huge amount of people that would never, ever be anywhere near a DSD clinic, would likely, there would never be any kind of ambiguity at birth. If you're looking at, say, people that are born with just genitalia that would look atypical to the untrained eye, Um, If you're thinking about in the UK, there's about 130 babies born every year. And of those, um, probably about a third of them would have CAH. Um, What is CAH? CAH is congenital adrenal hyperplasia. So that would be the typical would be a sort of girl who would have XX chromosomes, would have um, fully kind of internal female Productive, our reproductive system would have ovaries, a uterus, um, but there could possibly be some masculinization of the external genitalia due to excess androgens while she was um, in utero. So could be born with an enlarged clitoris or at the most extreme end of that could be born with what resembles a penis but would have kind of normal internal reproductive system. The CAH groups hate to be called intersex. If you look at the evidence for that, it's about 95% of them don't identify with the term intersex. So pretty much most of them don't. And they don't even want to be called a DSD if you look at the American ones because they consider it to be more of an endocrine group. Yeah, but that would be about a third of the babies. The other third would be the um, what they call penoscrotal hyperspadius. So it's the more... It's the hyperspadius where the kind of the opening of the penis would be right down near the scrotum. And that can come with quite significant um, issues just around kind of urinating and later sexual function. And then the last third would be the what they would call the XY girls. And that would be typically it would be the AIS girls like me or then there's the more kind of complex, the partial antigen insensitivity, and there's the five alpha reductase, and then like there's a lot of a whole kind of range of very rare conditions that can happen, and some can be associated with really kind of life-threatening emergencies. In CAH, can present um, with salt wasting. Um, and can be life-threatening if it's not picked up early and they're not treated, and they may need to be on lifelong medication. 
for that. Um, some of the other intersex conditions can involve pretty much like the whole, the whole kind of bowel and sort of bladder area, or just not developing at all or being outside the body. So it's almost kind of no genitalia at all. So you've got and would not have been compatible with life until kind of recent surgical interventions make that possible. But kind of some really conditions that have really, really significant impact on somebody's life. I'm thinking of these drawings of a body where the hands are really big and the mouth is really big because mm-hmm. the the drawing is based on people's perception of their body or where, where they have the most nerve endings. And mm. one of the issues of talking about uh, DSDs, as you just did, is that somebody mm. who's not super smart will hear this and they will discard the thing you said at the beginning, which is you're talking about a vanishingly small population. And what they're going to hear mm. is, oh, wow, a third of babies have AIS mm. and another third of babies mm. <laughs> have, have this other condition. Wow. Uh, so like, because, you know, they're exposed to information, they, they map the information on reality according to how much it's talked about. Mm. That's what I think when I hear about this, because no matter how, yeah, yeah, no matter how long it's been, it's almost like the more people know, the dumber they become about it because Mm. of this information mapping onto reality thing that people do mm. well you just can't get any sensible information I, I can't put in, intersex into instagram just to see what came up on the hashtag intersex and it was just bizarre there was just nothing there was nothing about intersex there was various glitter beards so you could get a glitter beard to match every like diverse gender identity flag and you had some various people dancing around in their pants. And, and there's just absolutely nothing. So it's like, well, if you're trying to find some medical information as a young person and you put hashtag intersex, then you just won't find anything. Or then what you do find is then kind of activist groups. And, and the more that I know activists the more I'm convinced a lot of them don't actually have a DSD that would have been diagnosable and the most common reason now that somebody identifies as intersex is to have polycystic ovaries and if you look at some of the research that's coming out from intersex academics um, who use kind of an online survey asking people to self-identify as intersex then the most common reason people do is polycystic ovaries how did that ever Which, get classified as intersex? Well, there's activists who are part of Interact in the US who were kind of young activists or just on TikTok telling people that I'm intersex, I've got polycystic ovaries. You know, and that's almost like 10% of women could have polycystic ovaries. And, Is, and uh, even the most kind of superficial, um, what they'd call a subcoronal um, hyperspadius, would be classed in some terms now as intersex, according to some activists. So it kind of makes the whole thing just very muddy because the people who are probably most in need and may be in need of some psychological support when they're younger or maybe need in some family or medical support seem to be lost in this whole 
big mess of people self-identifying and seeing it very much as an identity and not as as yeah as as on the whole yeah just something yeah something that comes with quite a lot of complications and um i've heard academics write about intersex in the term of benign variations and that's all they are and um i had to take one up on that um during a lecture yeah just nothing benign about finding out as a 14 year old that you're born without a uterus and the impact that can have on your fertility and sexual function you know as a as a young teen to find that out it's really hard and has quite a big impact on how you how you kind of navigate relationships as a teenager and what to tell people and it's yeah and it's not it's not just benign it's not just like a benign identity that you can that you can wear it's something that can have just like really quite big impact on your life and comes with some very real yeah just some very real needs and needs for support so well, I often like to say it's no barrier to a really good life but you kind of need that bit of support that kind of addresses the the real things that are impacting on people so you sound pretty different than Alice Drager sounds talking about this. Yeah. And Alice Drager is not ignorant. Mm. You know, she was involved in intersex organizations, mm. I guess, from a long time ago. Yeah. So, yeah. so can you speak about uh, things that she said? Or, I mean, I, I don't know how much you're... Well, I really, from everything I've read and listened to Alice, I think she's she seems like a, a lovely like a really lovely person and and I think did lots of good things and I think I think she has known lots of activists which is probably where where things come from and I think activists don't always represent the majority of people who live with with any I think any sort of health condition at all and I think there probably was a bit of a difference in between the US and the UK where I think the activism in the u in the us came very much um i think out of um the lgbt activism at the time there it was kind of very much more aligned with that whereas i think in the uk there was a lot more kind of patient advocacy so there was a lot more of wanting to work with with doctors and um and just to improve kind of standards of care that way so possibly it's a bit easier to do that in the UK, maybe because of our health system. And so if you get the right people, we're a lot more guideline based. And um, so if you do change something, you kind of change probably more of the system. Whereas in the US, it seems like almost everybody does their own thing. I, I think in the US, yeah. the big issue was um, doing surgeries on infants yeah so yeah so yeah which and even that is really it's really confused because if you look at the um if you look at most of the surgical interventions that are done it is for cah and for um hyperspadius and there were some terrible surgeries that were done back um gosh if you're thinking like 30 40 years ago where I think they tried to do things when people were really little. But in the UK, things have changed quite significantly. 
um, and they're much less likely to to um, to just jump straight to surgical interventions. I know I had um, a gonadectomy when I was 14 and I had no idea what it was going to be and it was kind of all hidden from me and the whole truth was hidden for me. But now there's much more of a drive that, um, you know, you won't have any surgical invent- intervention until after puberty and then it's a choice and you can have kind of ongoing monitoring if... Um, if that is then your choice and I know a lot of people that are kind of choosing oh sorry that are kind of choosing that route now and and I think that's that whole confusion even with the whole kind of what you hear is kind of end intersex surgeries where people talking about hospitals doing intersex surgeries and then the surgeries they do do are for CAH and for hyperspadius and both groups don't want to be called intersex and I worked out that you know they probably see a case of something like partial androgen insensitivity syndrome for your average hospital um, about once every five years or less so I kind of never completely sure what people are talking about when they when they talk about this and and that people almost lose their minds just because it's about genital surgery and and in the UK, we have the GMC, and they're very clear that you know no surgical intervention should be done on children unless they are um, medically needed and they are clearly in the best interests. and And I think one of the issues is is that there just isn't a huge amount of int- um, of um, evidence for a lot of the surgeries that they do, and. And I think with any surgical intervention, it can sometimes just cause more harm than than good. And one of the things that I find the most bizarre is that these exact same surgeries that um, will then be promoted to kind of young people with a trans identity, even though we know from the history of people with variations of sex development that they all often come with far more harm than and just such a huge number of complications because they've kind of moved away from anyone with AIS or a DSD from, say, doing um, some sort of vaginoplasty or um, sort of creating a vagina, say, using part of the bowel or another way just because the complications are so significant. And they will go for a much, um, so it tends to be dilators of first line through the whole group now, just because surgery comes with so many complications. And that's something that's known with this group. So it seems hard to understand then why the same complications are not raised when you're talking about, then yeah, a group with a diverse gender identity. It's something that I found quite hard to, to really clearly get my head around. The surgeries that they're doing to to young people, which are mainly they call it gender confirmation surgery, right? Mm, yeah, so, yeah. Gender recognition surgery or something reassignment. like that. Reassignment. Mm, so, Reassi- yeah. No, I don't think it's reassignment. Yeah. It's it's not. Re- but, I don't yeah. think it's it's gender confirmation. It is gender surgery. not gender confirmation. But then they right. will talk about. I often hear talk people talk about the kind of intersex surgeries, as that babies are having. Yeah their sex changed or sex change surgery on babies and very much like that, you know, that they will 
like just toss a coin and choose boy or girl and then just do this surgery and then force you to be that when in reality it's not that at all what they have done previously is try to normalize appearance so rather than being able to say okay this child has got an enlarged clitoris and it's just an enlarged clitoris then just leave it be because that's fine um all bodies come in different shapes and sizes they've tried to kind of just normalize the appearance and i don't think it's just the genitalia that doctors have done this though they've done this for every single part of the body and it's almost that yeah we can't cope with anything that looks slightly different that we have to try and normalize the appearance of that and and it's the same with then the hyperspadius repair where they've you know the penis might look slightly different. Um, a boy might have some difficulty standing up to pee, so they will do the surgery instead of just thinking, well, is it okay if a boy sits down uh, to pee and you can leave it till later on? It's not something that's really medically necessary. But I would say that just should be the same as any other surgery. It should be very much done on what the evidence is and best interest and do no harm. And that. And I think with any surgery, it can come with quite significant risks. So I think one of the first things you learn when you do medicine is that um, you just try all the other things first before sort of going to surgery. It seems to be kind of the opposite. So I was struck the first time I talked to Alice Drager, where she said that intersex is an identity. Well, I would say that it is now. It's... That's, I think some people really strongly um, identify as as intersex. But I think where it's got very confused is that there's probably only a fraction of the people who do identify as intersex who have a DSD. Lots of them don't. Lots of them feel intersex. There was, a, there was an article written, a, or like um, a research paper a couple of years ago, which was about how people were presenting, pretending to be intersex when they're when they're not. In the UK, we had oh gosh, somebody who was working with Stephen Fry and going round to various prime of uh, um, pride events talking about intersex, who turned out not to be intersex at all. Like so, no DSD, but just feels intersex. Kept talking about how their brain was intersex. So it's an identity, but it's one which is probably more common for people without a DSD than those that actually do have a DSD. And if you look at um, most of the evidence, most people with an actual DSD don't particularly like the term and parents don't like the term. And there's some evidence that by using the term and labelling a child as, say, neither male or female, puts them at more risk of parents choosing surgical interventions because you may like a parent may be okay yeah I've got boy or girl with a different body and that's okay I can raise them with a slightly open mind in case they decide something different in the future it's very different to being the only child in your whole school who's um who's been labeled neither male or female because for however much they talk about the 1.7 percent in reality, a parent is going to be the only person who's within any of their parenting groups, the only child in the school, maybe in their local town, and who's got that kind of significant history. So it's yeah, it's very it's yeah, very, very different than than what people what people think. <laughs> so that 
I think the intersex identity has been almost being forced on everybody who's got any any slight difference at all from from what would be expected. Like I think the majority of people with polycystic ovaries do not consider themselves intersex and the majority of people with hyperspadias don't consider themselves intersex. But you know, there are activists who are intersex activists making quite good careers and making a lot of money, yeah. sort of talking at various events and actually kind of changing policy who don't have they don't well, they don't have a DSD. <laughs> they, well, I which makes it all the more bizarre. I am irritated when people say woman is an identity because Mm. adult human female is an actual like measurable physical state and i realize Mm. people identify identify as all sorts of things but i'm just interested in the reality of you know like there's evidence you can tell whether someone is female or not and same thing with intersex Mm. so the idea of intersex being an identity is like it's like well that's it's a real thing, right? Like intersex conditions mm-hmm. are real things and it doesn't matter what your identity is. You have a condition like that or you don't. Mm. Well, yeah. And the majority of people with the conditions don't want to be called intersex because they don't like it. They want to use condition specific language on the whole. Like most people with CAH um, will just say they've got congenital adrenal hyperplasia and they don't see it as an identity they see it as a medical issue and they may see that um you know they have an enlarged clitoris or have kind of various medical issues that go alongside that but don't see themselves as intersex and so this is kind of where it gets all very 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 confusing yeah and there's yeah and you'll get a couple of people that then do and really strongly feel that they're intersex but and it's just like people you know men who very strongly feel like they're women like when you said people feel like they're intersex i'm like how do you feel Mm. intersex it's like i have i have no idea (laughs) (laughs) i mean it seems like it's like how do you feel like a woman that's the question that we ask a lot well yeah because that's and i think that's where i get frustrated as well because um i think particularly Complete androgen insensitivity syndrome gets used a lot as that way of trying to validate this belief that we all have this innate gender identity because we are presented as these um, people with the XY chromosomes that develop along to what appears to look very feminine on the whole. And, um, and then we're told that we all have this very feminine gender identity. And and I think that goes back from a lot of doctors and things will be um, when they present it to young people, you know, the first thing they often tell you is like, oh, they're supposed to be a model and an actress who've, you know, got complete androgen sensitivity syndrome, present it that we're supposed to be these like super feminine people and everything. Where, Whereas on the whole, when any I've met anyone, we're just as diverse as anyone else with, it's just as much of a range of interests as anyone else. And I have no idea if what I feel is typical of what other women would feel. And like the only inner experience I can ever know is my own. And, and I know from the experience I've had, they're not typical of your typical woman, but I, 
navigate the world in a way that anyone I meet with eyes or ears is going to treat me as a as a woman and I was I grew up believing my biology was not that atypical until like I found out the first bit at 14 but didn't actually find out about the complete androgen sensitivity until I was gosh nearly 24 so it was quite a long old a little over a little over a a year ago there was an outbreak Mm -hmm. in the gender critical community of this really crazy uh what would you call it a social contagion where a number of of gender critical women decided that they were going to finally take a stand and Mm -hmm. where they decided to stand was um on insisting that individuals that have complete androgen insensitivity syndrome were men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and that they were going to be keeping the that group out of women's spaces and that they mm-hmm. would be using male pronouns and and even the I, I think the most extreme thing and and uh the, the person who made the suggestion um very badly diminished themselves in in, in my eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, they insisted that 14-year-olds who discover they have CAIS mm. should be raised from that point forward as boys. Do, did, yeah, you, did you happen rem- to observe that? I, I did, yeah. So, yeah, I think I had, um, gosh, I think I got into a discussion with one of them who wanted all babies to be tested yes. um, shortly after they were birthed. So that they could label the um, the ones with complete androgen insensitivity syndrome as disabled men, and get mm. them to use the disabled toilets and all the disabled facilities. That's um, yeah. just yeah, it was quite a, yeah. Yeah, that that particular one had somehow developed quite a following of, of people who mm. so, decided yeah. to so, yeah. To, yeah, I, I think she's backed away a little bit from that. Mm. But I think it has been that I think people with um, DSD or intersex variations have just been very much caught within the middle of the whole the whole argument. Um, with I think being problematic to the extremes on both sides, and and I think on one hand you've got um, yeah the people like that person who were. I think one of them called me a failed male and um, and the most kind of dehumanising way to talk about people. And then you've got the, on the other side, you've got um, the real kind of the more extreme trans activists who will share naked photos of women with AIS as a kind of a gotcha on social media to say, look, they've got... If they're a woman, then I'm a woman and and using it very much like that without really kind of trying to remember that they're kind of real people at the very heart of it. Where did they get naked pictures of AIS? Gosh, well, I think there's it's the most awful thing. It represents probably some of the worst trauma that people experienced where if you're going back, say, 50 years where um, people were writing journal, journal articles, so they would take like naked photos of women and girls and then present them in the articles with kind of a black bar across their eyes. Lots of times these were taken without consent or without parents' knowledge and kind of represent some of the kind of the worst 
um, probably like human rights abuses against people with, um, say, AIS or other intersex variations. And so you can still get them by searching journal articles or looking at um, medical textbooks. But anybody who knows anything about the kind of the, the actual things that people experienced would would not share them, and particularly in that way, because they're mostly pictures taken without consent. So I've noticed that there is a bit of a fashion among certain trans-identified males to mm-hmm. claim that they have AIS, or or if they oh, have yeah. PAIS, yeah. to say that they have CAIS, mm. that it's something they really want, like they really want. Yeah. Did you say that's a trend? I it's a fashion. Oh, yeah. So yeah. yeah, I think it's I think it's a trend, and it's, I think it's... in a lot of cases there is a a real fetishization of the whole idea of having a DSD, which they sometimes understand as having both sets of genitals. So they will sometimes invent the most bizarre edsex conditions that just do not exist, or they would be the one person in the whole world that ever, ever did. And yet they've had no medical diagnosis ever. Um, yeah. And I wouldn't call just, it a trend. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. been like that for yeah, bit, forever, so, forever yeah. basically. Or just, yeah. But if you look at, yeah. And like some of the, the online groups, there's some, there's a few Facebook groups for, um, for AIS. And then occasionally you'll get someone just pop up who, obviously from their physical appearance does not have complete androgen sensitivity syndrome but will suddenly be asking all sorts of quite personal questions and quite detailed questions and lots of times they'll be like oh it's so unfair I wish somebody had operated on me when I was a child and you kind of get that that side of things which is yeah it's, it's another, a fetish quite another yeah so yeah and it it does feel very much like that have you read Carol Hooven's book about testosterone? I've read some of it. I haven't finished it as yet. So. Oh. oh. And I've had some chats with Carol Hooven on um, on Twitter as well. Do you have any takes? Um, I really like. Yeah. Well, I've really liked the bit. The bit I read. I'm really interested myself in what um, what impact that complete lack of testosterone has on your kind of on your brain development and and what an impact it has on you as I guess yeah just on your development and I think both your psychological development as well as your physical development um I can see in myself the the differences in the physical development which I didn't understand as a younger person um because I wasn't I wasn't told about having AIS until my 20s and I didn't really realise as a teen that I didn't need to use deodorant. And um, just because without testosterone, I can't produce body odour. So I can, I could not wash for days and still be quite fragrant. <laughs> um, and I can't, I don't have any body hair at all because you can't. So yeah, because you need testosterone for your body hair. Wait, so you don't have like fuzz on your arms well like really tiny fuzz it's just that fuzz but any kind of like pubic underarm hair you can't Got develop it. because of the lack of testosterone um i've never had you, you normally have really kind of fine skin because you can't get 
acne, you can't get spots without testosterone. Um, so as a as a teen, you're this yeah very kind of clear skinned, no no body odor, no body hair, which like a model. So well, that sometimes that's what the doctors would always say. That's the sort of thing they would say, like oh that makes everything okay. Um, but <laughs> so in that. Which is again sort of like quite a sexist way to kind of approach, yeah, approach kind of particularly kind of a teenager just finding out some quite difficult information. But so, it does have that real difficult difference on um, your physical body, and it's quite hard for me to build any muscles at all just because of that complete lack of testosterone. And and I think I noticed that as a younger teenager because I swam competitively till I was about, gosh, my mid-teens. And I was I was really good until puberty. And then um, we started doing weights and I just couldn't lift anything that anyone else could. And it was quite notably, like, even like on without any weights on it, I couldn't lift it. <laughs> so it's like just being a lot weaker from the lack of testosterone. Or I'd have to work a lot, lot harder. I'm really curious about how CIS women uh, age, like in old age, because, uh, you know, there's the famous thing where women develop a mustache after menopause mm. and things like all this testosterone. Yeah, so yeah, what was supposed to be? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I kind of feel almost like, well, I'm coming into a bit of my own. My friends are all kind of approaching menopause. And like I'm just fifty, but I think most people with AIS tend to look that bit younger, and we tend to have fairly good health from what I've been told into older age. I think one of the issues that we do have is um, tends to be much weaker bones. Um, so I've been within the osteopenic osteoporosis range since I was in my gosh mid twenties, and. And I think that is just that, yeah, the lack of testosterone and possibly difficulty. Um, I don't know whether, yeah. Um, it seems like if you yeah, can't... it's that kind of building that muscle. So, yeah, so, yeah, it's quite... So I've always been kind of very light-boned. If you can't... So, and that can impact, yeah. If you can't lift weights, then you can't uh, put that strain on your bones that strengthens Yeah, them. so, yeah. So I'll still, yeah, so I'm active and I'm not I don't think I'm like like completely pathetically weak but I remember being when I was trying to do competitive sport it was very noticeable when with the people that I was always pretty much the same as suddenly just not being able to do the same things that they could and I yeah and I stopped sort of swimming competitively at that age but didn't really understand why at the time I asked Carol a really flummoxing question that there's mm -hmm. still no answer to, uh, mm. which is, uh, great, I've forgotten it. I've, that, that is hard to answer. Yeah, that is, there's no answer to that. <laughs> well, I was just, I was wondering, like, what would happen if there were a, a girl or a woman who didn't know that she had CAIS and she wanted to go on testosterone? Right, which is this? Oh, I'm I'm been on testosterone for years, so yeah. Oh well, what happened? Wait, um, really? Uh, yeah, it's my endocrinologist um, had this idea that the testosterone gets well, it just gets converted to estrogen by your body, um, and he had this 
idea that is possibly some of the byproducts of that because it gets this kind of it's called like aromatization and it goes in testosterone too estrogen and whether there was something in that process that could be beneficial possibly to bones or well-being so it was a bit of a it was a bit of a theory but it was just a way of um giving it a try and i know quite a few people with ais that like having testosterone because prior to us um because historically they would always remove the internal testes because they believed there was a cancer risk and they would tend to do that by puberty. Whereas now, because they think the test, um, the cancer risk is much lower, lots of people will keep them because they will produce lots of testosterone, but it just all gets converted to estrogen by your body. So you end up, um, your puberty is fairly normal. And in one of the other slightly grim ways that they, that they often talk about women with complete androgen insensitivity syndrome is that you'll be described as voluptuous kind of within the medical textbooks and things like that, because you would have that um, that fairly kind of hourglassy shape from, um, I think, probably sort of like the estrogen production. I was just imagining, like, yeah. if a girl really wanted to trans, how very well, frustrated you just, yeah, she it's would just, be. You just can't, yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. And, and one of the odd things is that I've probably come across two people now with complete androgen insensitivity syndrome who've thought about, like, wanting, wanting to. And which is really unusual because we would have always been used before as this idea of the ultimate feminine brain with the no access to testosterone. And we were used, if you read lots of things about gender identity, it was that, you know, we all have... All us case girls have a female gender identity and because of the the lack of testosterone. But there seems to be a couple now who are um, deciding that they do want to transition, although that's not a possibility. And it does make me feel that, well, the reason for that is that because of the, the social changes or whether that age and, and if anything, a lot of... Um, DSD or intersex variation show for a lot of people there's quite a lot of I guess gender fluidity in that sometimes they just make a pragmatic decision because if your body completely changes at puberty in a completely unexpected way then whereas they might have been perfectly happy living as a girl when they were before puberty if they significantly masculinize may then make quite a pragmatic decision and live as a man and less based on any gender identity but more on the kind of the practical pragmatic issues of what your body's doing and how you and how you look and how people react to you in the world and I remember the flummoxing question it was whether (laughs) it was whether uh you know a a typical xx female could have Mm -hmm. uh complete androgen and sensitivity syndrome that was my question we still don't know Ah, well, it would be, I think it would be really, really rare because it's X-linked. So most people would have it on one X chromosome and not the other. And so it's then, yeah, deactivated by the other X chromosome. I think there was some thought that the siblings or the carriers would possibly have some very, very mild insensitivity. But like really mild, it might mean that they have ever so slightly less body hair or sort of pubic hair but really slight and I don't think there was any great evidence of that 
but because um, it is, it's um, frequently carried through the kind of female line. So lots of um, women with AIS may have a a sister who's a carrier, who, so they will have nieces or possibly aunts who also have AIS. Joe, you said at the beginning that you're a, a child and adolescent psychiatrist. Did I remember that? Yeah. Correctly? So yeah. We talked a little bit about how young people may may choose to identify as intersex or some may mm. choose to identify as trans. Can you talk a little bit about in 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 this group of of young people the identity formation process generally and maybe it, yeah. any insights that you might have about why young people would 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 try to claim an identity or like why that's important for young mm. people? of adolescence is about identity development and that is the principal thing that we all do in that period and most of us if we look back at our adolescence would have tried on various different identities at different times and that can be focused around music or fashion or or anything I think if you if I look back to my own teenage years, how many times my mum stood at the bottom of the stairs being like, you can't go out like that. You're not going out the house looking like that. And and how different you would be between kind of one group and a different group and or even one year and the next year. And And so I think it's completely normal for teenagers to be trying out sort of different identities and identifying in different ways and thinking about who they are and... You may do it with horoscopes or you may do it with kind of music bands. And I think Spotify has probably put an end to a lot of the music stuff because everyone now has access to everything. Whereas if I look back to my own childhood, you had to like something specific because you could only afford to buy those couple of records a year. And so you could identify very strongly with it. And so I think for for young people, it's just completely normal. And probably what isn't as normal is when it's kind of medicalized or pathologized instead of just being a normal part of their adolescence. And and it's almost the the adults around them not not I guess it's that always with teenagers, it's that balance of being respectful and respecting their kind of developmental stage, whilst also treating it with a degree of lightness more than anything else, so that you're not almost kind of concreting it down to that's how they'll always, always be. And and I think, yeah, there's so much, the whole developmental stage is that everything in those, in those years can be quite, quite black and white. And um and you're going to identify more with your with your peers than you are with anyone else and you're going to be interested in what your peers think in a way that you won't be as interested in what adults think and and that's all just completely normal teenage behavior i think where it's i think where it's become really really difficult is the um I think the big overlap with um, particularly kind of autism or kind of autistic traits in young people. And and it's not just issues with gender that you see. Um, I think if you if you go into schools and you teach kids about healthy eating, then within an eating disorder service, there'll always be a number of children that will find that really difficult. 
Um, they will hear the the information about healthy eating and doing lots of exercise. And there'll be those couple of children, often with autistic traits, who will stop eating altogether or will stop trying to eat anything that has fat and sugar, or they'll be marching around their house for hours. And it's quite a recognised um, trigger for developing an eating disorder is having healthy eating lessons in school. And I think it's probably similar in a lot of ways. If you teach children in school about um, that, we all have an innate gender identity and it can be both fixed and it can be fluid and change over time. For some, they will kind of understand it in a in a less concrete way. But I think for some and possibly some of the more vulnerable children, they may understand it in a really, really concrete way. And then want to medicalise that quite early. And and possibly for some that will be in their best interests, but I think for possibly a lot it it won't be, but we may not know that for quite some time yet. A number of years ago, when, when the trans thing was really starting to ramp up, mm. it was mostly between some psychologists, some gender-affirming psychologists mm. and a small group of parents, and that was maybe 20 years ago now. Yeah, and, and now it seems to have been completely institutionalized. So I'm hearing what you what you're saying about pathologizing mm. identities and concretizing them, and getting children to develop a fixation. Particularly, mm. autistic children may develop these types of fixations. So when you are seeing young people as clients and they're starting to develop these sorts of identity fixations. How are you counseling the parents? I don't know if it was a baby, you would like wave a toy to Mm, distract them. But if it's a teenager, you can't, you can't just wave a toy in front of them. Yeah. Well, at present, um, no CAMS services within, within the UK are commissioned to see young people with um gender dysphoria so if they do experience that they will be referred to the Tavistock and I think that's where a lot of the difficulties have been is that um psychologists at local at local services have not wanted to kind of broach the topic of gender so then people have ended up on a waiting list for a long time and without any of that really being being addressed um, if you talk to some, particularly some inpatient um, consultants, they will sort of talk about how almost every inpatient unit where you have some of the most vulnerable children with some of the most significant and severe self-harm, many will now have a either a trans or a non-binary identity alongside all of the other diagnoses that they have. And... And that wasn't really happening if you think about five, ten years ago. And, you know, these aren't children that typically act in. So when people talk about how they'd always been able to kind of bury that before and not, and now they, they you know, they feel like they're able to sort of come out. Like These weren't ever real children that do act in. They act out about everything. and um, But they now have that identity alongside everything else. And... And I'm often, I think when I've when I've seen children directly and when we've talked about it, I've spoken to a few and shown them pictures of like Boy George and Annie Lennox. 
from the 80s and they've been amazed like really shocked that they are not trans and that they don't identify in that way so and but most yeah and most parents just yeah want to be understanding and want to be supportive and and if you look at most parents of young teens now um like they're not parents in the 1950s they're you know they were parents who were born in the 70s and 80s really and are pretty are pretty liberal on the whole but it's just wanting to make sure that you know the young people don't make any kind of irreversible decisions when you know they are having such a really difficult time about everything else and it's not a particularly great time I think adolescents to make long-term decisions and we recognize that for everything else can can confirm not for school though I was really struck by the pressure on adolescents to like decide what career path they want to be on yeah so yeah which yeah which is crazy I went back to medical school when I was 30 so (laughs) I did everything the wrong way around if there were another debate like the Drager Wright debate Mm -hmm. what would you recommend the rules set out to be so that it didn't it wasn't another hour talking about intersex well, I just think the whole debate is just, more than anything else, I think the debate is just ridiculous. It's just silly. Like, everybody knows that like we, we're not, there isn't a third sex. Um, but there's some people, and I think that's why they almost ended up saying the same thing. There's some people that may not fit neatly into either being male or either being female, if you look at the really strict biological definitions. But most of them are just living their lives within a sex role with a few of them wanting to possibly identify in a different way. And that's and that's okay. But at the same time, knowing that that pretty much everybody that was born was, you know, came out of somebody's vagina. And that's just that's just a fact. We all were born from somebody of the female sex mating with someone of the male sex. And that's that's fact. And that's because we have two sexes and. And I think a lot of it comes down to be able to hold sort of two positions or that two things are true at the same time. And that, you know, sex is about as binary as you can get in nature, where like every single part of nature has some variation or some natural variation between kind of the two two points. But and I, yeah, I just think if you had like a hundred biologists in a room, they could have like a fascinating debate about the tiny different parts of different areas of sex or in sex development in humans. Um, but it probably won't ever come to any conclusion. And you almost have to hold the two points in, in mind at the same time and say that, well, yeah, on the whole, um, there's two sexes, sex is binary, whilst for this really tiny number of people, there is that natural variation where putting somebody into a complete category will not always be um, as straightforward. And you can kind of hold those positions both in mind. I think so much of it, yeah, I think the whole gender wars could come down to a lot of it that you've got two positions or two things can be true at the same time and it seems that lots of people can't accept that and and you know you can have it can be true that both trans activists want the best for children with gender dysphoria and p 
people that they would call TERFs one of the best for children with gender dysphoria, but they're kind of coming at it from completely different different ways. And maybe that there's that little bit of truth on on both sides that almost kind of needs to be brought together a bit. In that, you know, we do on the whole, I try and be respectful to to everyone whilst also allowing for that bit of flexibility about if you're talking about children they are at a developmental stage where making long-term decisions isn't always going to be in their best interest and and as somebody with a DSD who had surgery um I know that it can come with a lot of complications and and uh two things at the same time I always think I come back to there. I'm not sure there's something called um, I'm not sure if either of you ever heard of something called dialectical behavioral therapy which tends to be um, used for that real emotional dysregulation and that real kind of that real kind of black and white thinking where um, you see everything kind of on that extremes and and it is all about just being able to hold two positions at the same time and that there may be some truth in both positions and and you kind of get a more kind of complete understanding by trying to bring them both together a little bit and um rather than just always complete completely at loggerheads that's that's like the turf tranny alliance our slogan is sex is real people are weird yeah so yeah well we are that's what i think and i think the same with sort of dsd or intersex variations it's um one of the um sort of like a mum of a young person i know will just be like yep your bodies are like miracles the way they've kind of developed in this really atypical way and and i guess that is the the wonderfully weird diversity of nature so where however binary something may be and however real sex may be it's can still do some really unexpected things and and that should be okay I feel like I can I can hold all that but then there's this cohort of people with personality disorders fetishes and Mm. uh a real desire to roll back women's rights in my opinion yeah so yeah it's like uh it's so it's so polarizing right when 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 somebody or like i should say when you feel attacked i know that i know that the many of the people doing this many of the trans activists that i have a problem with they may genuinely feel attacked they genuinely feel persecuted maybe some of them. Um, Mm. and when you feel that way, you, you push back, you become really oppositional and then the other side becomes oppositional and it all gets like super oppositional. So on the one hand, I'm like, yeah, I could totally get along. Mm. You know, I've been, been friends with trannies for a very long time and everybody else could be too. But then it's like, I, I can't help but get um, adversarial when I see, when I, when I feel under threat as I do with changes to legislation, for example, that mm. put male rapists in women's yeah. prisons. And, and, and it's when, I think it's when you just need to have some, some grown ups just to be sensible in that most people want to treat other people decently and fairly, but 
at the same time, you've got to acknowledge that, you know, that, yeah, sex does matter and that, that it really matters in certain situations. And and I think as yeah. far oh, as women's safety... I'm, 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 sorry, and, I'm s- uh, sorry to interrupt. I, I hear that sex matters is actually a, a, a dog whistle. That is it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's hate speech. We'll cut that out. That's hate speech. We'll oh, cut, yeah. okay. Sorry, sorry for interrupting. Please, yeah. please go on. But we, we will take that out. But we don't it, want it, dog whistles. It does. And, you know, you can say, like, not all women get pregnant, but but I think just the issue of of pregnancy just has such a huge impact on the lives of so many women. And I think that's often something that's forgotten when they talk about single sex spaces, because it often comes down to the risk of assault. But there's also the risk of pregnancy. And and you see that in mental health wards, because sometimes you're you know, you may be nursing a woman who's having a um, a manic episode, which can present with sexual disinhibition. So you may be trying to care for a woman who's stripping off her clothes um, is in a really vulnerable way. And so nursing within a single sex environment may be the most the safe way to prevent the possibility of pregnancy when the risk of pregnancy when somebody is on a multiple possibly quite risky medications can be really significant and and it's been able to kind of have these discussions and for the and it's for such a limited number of situations because in you know in most situations like we don't need we don't need single sex in how we kind of interact with people but it's it's often in these cases where I think particularly women are their most at their most vulnerable and it's being able just to be able to discuss and recognize that whilst making sure that that hopefully then you can think about how different types of spaces work for different people at different times and yeah i guess sex is real immutable binary and asymmetrical Mm. (laughs) yeah so yeah because there is it's i think it's it's quite I think it's probably quite a profound impact it has on your life to have that possibility of pregnancy. And and I think just from that early age, whether it's the risk of becoming pregnant and either being pregnant or just even sort of not becoming pregnant, just the, the stigma that can sometimes come with infertility or making the choices not to be pregnant, it still has that impact on your life as a woman. And which is yeah which is different and and it's okay it should be okay to acknowledge that and I absolutely agree Mm. and I never really had Mm. to think about that until I got caught up in these issues because I was Ah, I was a a cool girl and kind of male identified and Uh this has really (laughs) forced me to acknowledge uh physical differences in the sexes and even though I never wanted children the reality was that uh the risk of pregnancy was huge for me and in heterosexual relations the burden of managing that risk fell on me and the side effects Mm -hmm. of it fell on me and like the stigma of not wanting children fell on me (laughs) and so whether yeah so yeah whether you want children or not uh yeah being female yeah because I I I did I it was the one thing I always wanted was 
was children, right, from a fairly young age. And I used to talk about having lots of kids when I was older. And and that was kind of, for me, it was probably the hardest thing about AIS is the infertility. And it was the one thing that did mess with my mental health was that time when everybody I knew was pregnant. And and I really, really wanted to be. And it was and it was really hard. And and I remember actually doing, gosh, one of my medical placements and gosh, I think I'd done a, I was doing a surgical rotation and the entire male surgical team kind of quizzed me about when I was going to have a baby and um, why haven't I had it? You've got to get on with it as a woman and blah, blah, blah. And, and it's really, it was really tough. And I'm, yeah. And yeah, I have an adopted son now, which is still possibly the most like the best thing that I've that I've ever done and I yeah and I've just loved being a parent and so yeah and then sometimes I wonder about that with my yeah my AIS is that something (laughs) is that something to do with the lack of testosterone because I was always somebody who was probably yeah wanted wanted children and that but then in other ways would be less yeah, we'll Less never know. Typical. So I so said, no, yeah. <laughs> I always say, yeah, my, my husband cries every year when we watch the holiday. And he's quite a manly man in other ways. And he'll fix anything and mend anything. But yeah, we'll always cry at something. Whereas I'm probably much less of a crier, but always, yeah. So at the moment, I've got my son and I've got my, yeah, my dog, who's also my baby at the moment. So... Yeah, maybe that's a question for Carol Hooven, isn't it? <laughs> so, we got we got to be careful yeah. on that one. Yeah, so yeah, but we're all. I just think yeah, everybody. Um, I think everybody in the world is a bit of a mix of masculine and feminine traits to their personality to to different extent, and so if we all have an identity, possibly we're all non-binary to to an extent. I don't think I've ever met a completely binary gendered person. Yeah, the the binary like this would non-binary would make sense if they didn't think that it actually made them not male or female it's like of course of course you're not you know a a walking stereotype yeah so yeah we're all yeah and i I think for everybody we're all a bit of a mixture and yeah and i think coming back we're all a bit odd and a bit weird in our own ways and and that's okay yeah sex is real people are weird (laughs) Yeah, I like that. (laughs) Joe, for our listeners who are interested in in more information on this topic, Mm -hmm. uh, do you have a a blog or a newsletter or anything that that they can check out? Gosh, well, you can look at the DSD Families website if you want just um, just the factual information about various DSD conditions. Um, I've got a blog called Differently Normal. With a, I think it's got a hyphen between the differently and the normal, if I remember. All right. We'll check that out. And gosh, it was awesome having you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah thank you. Is there anything else no, you want to... it's wanna... been quite fun, actually. So, yeah. Oh, right. I, I, I think I so. To, so, yeah. Forgot to mention, yeah. this was Joe's first podcast, so we have the it honor was, yeah. of her first podcast. And is there anything else that you want people to know or think about? while you have this opportunity to reach at least 16 Ooh. listeners? 
Gosh. Well, they, they can check out the DSD Families um, website. You can always donate there <laughs> if anybody is interested. I think for me, what I've wanted, I'm a trustee at DSD Families. And and I think particularly for sort of most people with intersex variations uh, or a DSD, I think support needs to start with parents and quite young. Um, I'm running a couple of Facebook groups just for parents at the moment, which has been just amazing to see because it's it's really, really hard having a child who's born with any difference at all. So not just a DSD, but any any difference can be really tough. And and just because it is quite rare, you're not going to meet anybody in your usual circles. And um, but I think if you can get that support to parents at the right time so that they're able just to to share information at as a child kind of grows up so none of it comes as a big shock later on and that children are able to just to meet other other kids before kind of puberty so it's all just that little bit normalized in a way of like they know somebody else and and it's fine and and probably the most thing i would say is that i know lots of people with um I now know lots of people with DSD and sex variations who are just living really, really good lives. And I think you can need a bit of support at times. And but I don't think it's any barrier to having a really good life. And I think I'm probably at a time in my life when I'm probably happier than I've been at any other time. And and so I'd often say to particularly kind of to young people who are really struggling with their with their body or wanting to change their body. Um sometimes it just takes that time just to be able to accept yourself and accept yourself for who you are and um but just because it's really really tough it doesn't mean it'll always be like that and yeah well, I think good, that's, good yeah. wisdom so there. <laughs> like life begins at 50 so if you're oh, not yes. 50 yet so, yeah. just hang in there yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly i've got all of the 50th birthdays at the moment that i'm going to cool I love being in my 50s. Thank you so much for joining us. That's okay. No, it's been really fun, actually. You, you did, did great. great. And mm. as always, thank you for listening, Turfs and Trannies. Goodbye. Bye. Okay, bye. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to Heterodorks. You can support us by visiting our page at anchor.fm slash heterodorks or by supporting Nina Paley at patreon.com slash Nina Paley. You can also support us by writing a review on your favorite podcast site, such as Apple Podcasts. Thank you.